Hello and welcome to Game Over Montreal. I mean, hey, it's kind of the usual, but not really. We're, we're, it's a lot different than when we said we're covering another Montreal Canadiens loss earlier in the season. This is a fun team to watch now. It's not shitty hockey. And, you know, I look at the stream chat already. There's some complaints about officiating. Yes, they're, listen, it has not been their best selves over the last stretch here. And, you know, Gord Miller had a thread on that that, you know, we'll talk about it, but let's get my guest in here first. I've got Dylan Waugh from, you know, Eyes on the Prize, the Hab Statistician podcast and Hockey Unfiltered. How's it going, man? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. Another Canadian's loss, but it was almost a win this time. Yeah, I mean... I'd say a lot of people might see it as a missed opportunity considering they had that full power play with the four forwards out there. And they're a little bit static, frankly, with the four forwards out there. I wonder if they were a little bit too worried to make a mistake because it was a bit of a gamble by St. Louis and Burroughs to put out four forwards on a power play. But I don't know. It looked like they had some good looks in overtime, but uh, weren't able to finish it off. Dallas Stars, I think, overall had the much more dangerous scoring chances in that game. It seems like <laughs> yeah. the Canadians, like they always had, uh, you know, passes bouncing over sticks. It was very similar in a lot of ways to the Arizona game where they were doing good things, but they couldn't complete as many plays as the Arizona Coyotes did on their very few chances, except for Caulfield and Suzuki, who were <laughs> once again, absolutely electric and the number one reason to watch this team right now. Yeah, and I mean, I want to point out as well on Suzuki's goal, the assists were Caulfield and Romanov. So, I mean, that's hopefully your core. Like, we we talked on the Habsetition about how Romanov may or may not turn into anything because he was really languishing under Ducharme. But another guy who, you know, he's not afraid to make mistakes. He's And he's just looking like the player that we want to see. We don't need a perfect defenseman, but we need somebody that's going to, I don't know, do something. It's like that meme. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like there's been a couple people pointing out recently that Romanov was languishing under Ducharme, but I feel like he was one of the only young guys who was doing all right under Ducharme. The issue was that he was coming from such a low spot that just looking okay had everyone in the beginning of the season. Like I remember the first half of the season, people were like, Oh man, he's taking huge strides forward this year, but I'm not sure he actually did. He just got a lot of playing time and wasn't terrible. Like a lot of other players were terrible. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know if he's actually been that much better under St. Louis. I think he's one of the few players who hasn't improved that much. Although I do think he had a pretty decent game. The thing about Romanov that bothers me is Yes, he's extremely good at hitting. He's a decent skater. But every time he has the puck and he's presented with two options, he, as a matter of routine, will go with the worst option. <laughs> you know, it, you, you have the puck at the offensive blue line. There's an open passing lane. Nobody blocking yeah. it. A guy's there ready to one-time it. And Romanov's like, I'm going to shoot this into the guy's shin pads. You know, like, yeah. it's just... That kind of stuff really bothers me. And if you want to be a core piece of a rebuilding team, I just feel like you got to have a more cohesive skill set than he has. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not seeing it yet. I, I want to see what St. Louis and co and their development program that they're bringing in can do with him because he's not too old to salvage something, but I'm not sold on him yet. I think that the idea that he was doing very well under Ducharme is uh, largely in part to big event bias, which was like you said, you know, the people would see him just, you know, just ending people in hits, right? Yep. With and, Emily, but same as Emily. Numbers, right? right. Emlyn was so fun to watch. I mean, he was a disaster, but he was fun to watch, right? But so you get that big event bias, which is that Ducharme wants Romanov to play a certain way. Now, all of a sudden, what I'm seeing is different is that he's rediscovering or at least attempting to rediscover that offensive side of his game. Now, to your point, you're right. 
he makes terrible decisions offensively. But the fact that he's willing to get in there and mix it up again, to me, suggests that he can hopefully learn to make better decisions offensively. I just think that like the offensive side of his game was essentially I, I hate being that guy that's like, you know, angry at Ducharm. Like I don't I'm you know, I don't think that he deserves a lot of the hate that he gets. But I do think that that side of his game was stunted uh under Ducharme. And I think that so where we've seen him have two years of progression defensively, we have seen zero years of progression offensively. As a matter of fact, we've seen a lot of regression offensively since he first joined the Montreal Canadiens. And so we have to come at it with that expectation that it's his first day in the NHL trying to do something offensively. And so the mistakes don't really bother me as much, especially in a rebuilding year, make lots of mistakes and lose us games and get us a great draft pick. But <laughs> um, that's what I think is in terms of, yeah, you're right. Like he wasn't destroyed under Ducharme. I do think that there were strides made in his game, but we're seeing him try to retap an area of his game that we were excited about when he first got drafted and when he first came over to Montreal. Yeah. It's going to be interesting. I feel like, I don't know if I want to blame Ducharme for how that whole thing went so much as the Montreal Canadians as an organization value defensemen who played a certain way under the last Mm -hmm. regime. Right. Yeah. And that's changing now very clearly. I mean, I don't think you would have heard Mark Bergevin come out publicly at a trade deadline where Brett Kulak is an unrestricted free agent at the end of it and say, oh, we really value him. We're not looking to trade him right now. (laughs) The Ken Hughes actually sees the value in Brett Kulak is like, huh? Okay. I mean, that's that's interesting. Didn't think you did, but that's great. So maybe there is something there for Romanoff to to figure it out. And I got some shit in the comments here saying I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. I know I struggle with pronouncing, like putting the <laughs> emphasis on the proper spot in Russian names. I always forget. So give me a, a bit of a break there, but yeah. I got in trouble from my wife because cow in her language is incomo. And I taught it to my daughter as incomo. And like, it was, it was a scandal in, in my in-laws family. So we do our best. We try. But ultimately, we're English speakers, right? Yes, we will make mistakes. I mean, you you see Russian players like there was a thread uh, a couple of weeks ago by Slava Voin, not Slava Voina, sorry, Slava Malamud, and he was talking very different yep. than Slava Voina, who sucks. Uh, <laughs> Slava Malamud talking about Russian pronunciations and like how certain consonants together sound different than what we would say in English. And one of the ones that he was talking about was a ZH. And he was saying that Z- that in Russian is not like za, it's like giraffe G. So J. So I was like, we called, we were supposed to call Alexei Zamnov, Alexei Zamnov this whole time. And this nobody said time. anything. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just Russian yeah. players that we've mispronounced for years and years uh, for the commenter saying that my shirt is awesome. Yes, it is. It's a very Montreal <laughs> shirt. You can get it at uh, plb-store.com. Great uh, Montreal-specific stuff. I think there's a Toronto section on there, too. So check that out if you have an inclination to buy a cool shirt like this. Um, Moving away from Romanov, Jake Allen. Man, oh, man. I know you're a goalie guy, too. Uh, Coming back after so long on the IR and pulling out that performance, what? Mm -hmm. Like, he would look like a man on a mission out there tonight. He was fantastic. A lot of his instincts were really good. Like on that three on one, which is of course the big highlight reel save, right? He was at his left. He moved to his right and then had to move back up to the slot. Now he was at the goal line when he moved to his right. And a lot of goaltenders, you see them cut across the goal line because that's the shortest distance, right? So our heads, the way that they it kind of processes that is I need to move to my left, but we're not looking at this as X and Y axis together like when you're kind of in that moment. And the fact that he moved forward and picked up space, put him in that situation where his glove was in a good place to make that glove save because he was trying to buy himself space again. It's just like little instincts like that. The fact that that's still alive and well in a player that has not been in a game type situation for a long time, uh, I'd say bodes very, very well for Jake Allen, it's uh, he he put up 
he really did. He put up a heck of a performance, got me out of my seat more than a couple of times and scared the life out of me after that goaltender interference. And he went to the bench and I'm like, we just got him back. <laughs> but you know, other than that, like, yeah, you're, you're right. I um, can't, not enough good things to say about Jake Allen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, f- I feel bad ripping on him because he's really been dealt a short, like the short end of the stick in, in his tenure in Montreal, but watching Jake Allen's footwork compared to Sam Montembeau, it's a world of difference. You know, yeah. one is much more calm. And then I think last year watching Jake Allen compared to Carey Price, Jake Allen looked like kind of yeah. spastic half the time. So now I'm thinking like if Carey Price plays this season, it's going to look like he's not moving. <laughs> you know, like we're, yeah. we've been conditioned for so long watching these, these Montreal Canadians to expect Carey Price style goaltending, which is just so smooth yeah. and fluid. It's just, I don't even know how to describe it. Other than that, it's like the, the finest sand dripping through your fingers. When you pick it up on the beach, that's Carey Price goaltending, right? And yeah. then Jake Allen's a little bit less controlled than that. And then everything else we've seen this year between Primo and Montembeau has been something else. Now, I think yeah. Montembeau had a good stretch here, and I know a lot of people believe in his potential. I think he's at most a backup going <laughs> forward. I know that Kent Hughes said that he wasn't interested in trading a goalie, but with Carey Price now practicing a couple days in a row, I do wonder with the performance that Jake Allen just put out, if they're like, Hey, uh, Toronto, we know, well, actually maybe not Toronto. Cause they're, you know, high on Colgren right now, but Edmonton Vegas, yeah. this yeah. is a guy who could fit under your cap. He's got a very yeah. digestible contract. He's played in the playoffs before he's won a playoff series before. Heck he's stolen a playoff series before he's used <laughs> to high pressure situations. Maybe, maybe you might want to part with the first round pick. We've already got two. May as well give us a third one. <laughs> Let's get all the first round picks. Exactly. No, I mean, um, Jake Allen, uh, I'd actually forgotten about this. And then our, our mutual friend, um, other goalie guy, Paul Campbell, uh, reminded me that Jake Allen during the Tampa, um, Tampa Bay, St. Louis, the other team that wears blue during the St. Louis uh, playoff run, Jake Allen was studying the styles of the opposing goaltenders and then mimicking those styles in practice so that the shooters could see. So even if you have, like, if you're Vegas and you know that Leonard's presumably going to come back and presumably going to be your number one, I mean, the fact that they didn't start Leonard after he completely stoned the Montreal Canadiens in his first game, they didn't start him in the next game. Like, that's why they lost the series, right? Forget the little bobble that um, Marc-Andre Fleury made. I mean the mistake was already made and not starting Leonard. But my, my point is, is that if you're a team like Vegas, then you know that worst case scenario, Leonard's not ready and you bring in Jake Allen and best case scenario, Jake Allen does what he did um, in that playoff series and actually helps your shooters acclimatize to other goaltenders. Now, something that I'll say about, uh, what you were just mentioning about how you looking at Jake Allen this year is he, he looks like a lot smoother and you're wondering about Carey Price. I will say that Jake Allen, from what I've seen, is a lot smoother this year. I've never been hugely impressed and sold on Jake Allen as a goaltender since St. Louis into his Montreal days. But whatever he worked on in the offseason, he is a completely different goaltender than, than I've ever seen in his career. And regarding Montembeau, um, what you, you said, you said he's going to be at best a backup. You just have to put a positive spin on that. You just have to say it in a nicer way. He's going to be a backup. <laughs> and cause I don't think that people thought that he was even going to be that much. And I think that Monty could be a decent backup in the NHL. Now, I don't think he's ever going to be a starter, but the thing is you're right. His footwork is odd, but he's always ahead of the plane in that situation. And what I've learned, cause I coach goaltending here in Toronto is that getting people to understand how to beat the play is not as easy as you'd think it would be. No, it's like, like I'm the doing hardest a simple thing. drill, <laughs> right? I'm doing like a simple drill. I've got like one guy behind the net, one guy in front of the net. It's just like pass from him to this guy shoot. And the goalie's waiting and chasing the puck every time. And I'm like, look, man, 
this is the goaltender equivalent of a sphere in a vacuum. There are no extenuating circumstances here. You know where he is. You know where he is. All you have to do is beat the puck to that shot, and then you'll be in a good position to save it. And they still, every time, certain goalies, not all of them, not all my students suck, but they still will every time wait for that puck and chase it. And Monty's ahead of the play. So he makes weird save selections. He's not the best skater in the world. But at the same time, how much do you need to fix when he's already ahead of the play 90% of the time? Yeah, that's it, it's something that's worth it. You know, uh, you, you're right for pointing it out. You know, I, I will say, let's we're going to talk about the game a little bit more, but I do want to shift gears a little bit and talk mm-hmm. about the Ben Sherratt trade just because it is a huge bit of news. And I know that, like, I haven't had a chance to really tra- talk about it too much because it happened in between games. So <laughs> let's, uh, I mean, I, no, he was held out against Arizona. I haven't talked about it. I was like, did I talk about it? No, I didn't. So let's talk about the Ben Sherratt trade, and then we'll circle back to the overtime and the power play and, and uh, you know, Caulfield and Suzuki a little bit. Okay, so Ben Sherratt is traded to the Florida Panthers for Ty... It's like Smolanic or something like that. Or s- I'm glad you're the first one to take a kick. I know. I, I they know pronounced it on the wrong. broadcast. And now, because I keep on, when I type it on Google, it auto-completes as Similac. And I'm like, no, it's not the baby formula. It's, uh, I think it's, it's Smolanic. Smolanic. Yeah. So Ty Smolanic, who has a very similar profile to the guy they got, Emil Heineman, in the Toffoli trade. Also a first-round pick in 2023 and a fourth-round pick, I believe, this year. This yeah. trade is such a friggin' home run. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't like they still have to make bank on the pick, obviously, or use it to get another asset. But I mean, part of my view of this trade is colored by what I think of Ben Sherat, but it is unbelievable that they were able to create this much value for Ben Sherat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. It's it's funny because I was pretty underwhelmed from the Toffoli trade. Yeah, so I I, I took a lot of shit for saying it was a little bit underwhelming. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, you know, welcome to welcome to Habs world. Yeah. So, um, no, I mean, I I I love it, but um, but yeah, I was a little bit underwhelmed by the Toffoli trade. So I was kind of like, oh, maybe you do need huge biceps to make trades. I don't know, like, um, but this Sherat trade. Like this was a slam dunk, and the the Hi- Heinemann apparently, according to Patrick Bexel, who who writes Rise on the Prize, and you you know quite well, you hired him. No, you didn't hire him. Dumont uh, hired him. Patrick. No, Mark hired uh, Patrick. Yeah, but according to him, Heinemann actually has some decent offensive upside. Now this um this this fella, <laughs> that's part of the trade, uh that we just Ty uh, Smilinik. Smolanic, Smolanic. I'm very sorry. This this Ty Smolanic. I was reading an article by Ryan Kennedy for the Hockey News, um, just to try to you know familiarize myself with him. And NCAA guy, uh, just a solid 200 foot player. Apparently, he's got a decent bit of goal scoring touch, but um, has mostly played center. Is currently on the wing, but it's just because he's a sophomore. And all the centers that are ahead of him are much older than him. So, but what I was thinking about with this that I thought was kind of funny is that under the previous uh, general manager, a, a solid 200 foot two way guy in the NCAA would have been the centerpiece of the trade. Yeah. Like, this is exactly the kind of guy. So, from what I've read, good chance that he makes it to the NHL, not a good chance that he's much more than a bottom line or a 13th forward guy, but still an NHL player is valuable. Yeah. I I think the way I've been seeing it described is like at a high point, you hope he becomes a Jake Evans with a little bit more offense and a little bit less defense, which Mm -hmm. is like, Hey, that's a player that can plug a hole, whether it's short term or long term, those like giving yourself the most possible chances to, have players like that who I mean this kid's a goal scorer that's for sure and so is Emil Heineman that's his number one thing is his shot so bringing more of those kinds of prospects into the organization gives them something to work with and with the plan that they have 
to really beef up the development programs that you know don't really exist in the organization where their development program up for the last 10 years has been sink or swim it's up to you you know, yeah. and like, yeah, if you do yeah. that, a Brendan Gallagher is going to figure out how to do it as Nick Suzuki is going to figure out how to do it because yeah. they're incredibly hard workers dedicated and they're going to, they're going to find a way to be effective in the NHL. But some guys need a helping hand. They need help with what to focus yeah. on. What do you yeah. need to do to become a full-time NHLer? And the Canadians just have failed at finding ways to help their prospects do that. That's why I'm really interested to see over the next few years, how many of these guys hit because if the Canadians can start increasing their hit rate, even if they're not getting stars, they become a far more dangerous team because you're not spending $3.4 million against the cap to bring in UL Armia. You you don't have to spend for that kind of player. You can just create them yourself. And that's, that's the big thing. Uh, To be honest, the proper way to pronounce, uh, the IC in Smolanich is the same. Okay. Same as Buchnevich. So it's Smolanich. Okay. Smolanich. Okay. Um, you made me think of a joke. Uh, do you know what the odds are that, uh, that a prospect would make it to the NHL in the last administration? Low. Worse 50, than the 50. They either do or they don't. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Very like good. I had a friend text me when we signed um, this, this Nicholas fella to be our, to be the Montreal Canadiens head of, prospect development right or or player development and uh, this friend texted me and said and said why is Habs Twitter so excited about uh about this a skills coach know, a skills coach right like it's, it's, it's like such a minor hire and he's a Toronto fan obviously because I live in Toronto the hated city right and um and I said because the last three guys in charge of developing players was Michel Claude Dom yep like we didn't have anybody to develop these players. And now you can say what you will about Michel Therrien or Claude Julien or, 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 um, or, or, uh, Dom Ducharme. Dom Ducharme. It's already blocked from my memory. You can say what you will about them, but whether they should or should not be NHL coaches or how good they are and competent they are. But at the end of the day, nobody ever, that none of them put on their resume, I'm a development coach. Yeah. They're NHL head coaches or NHL assistant coaches or whatever you want to call them. So the fact that the Montreal Canadiens went, hey, maybe one fella that, you know, like this maybe, is maybe their no, job. people wearing a tracksuit are the same. Yep. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You have to have people who specialize in different areas. And the Canadians for far too long have ignored that. So on this mm-hmm. Sherat trade, I think the biggest key as much as uh, you know, Smolanich is an interesting prospect, is that first-round pick. Because not only is it a first-round pick, it's a first-round pick in 2023. And now, nobody believes that the Florida Panthers are going to bottom out next year after how good they are this year. And yeah. I know it, people were freaking out because it's not uh, lottery-protected or top-10 protected. <laughs> it's an unprotected 2023 first-round draft pick. So, hey, you not know what? going to be an issue. Things can happen. You know, if everybody gets injured for them and the division gets a lot better, sure, maybe they could get a higher pick, but most likely it's going to be in the 25 to 32 range. Yeah. Just because of how good the Panthers are. And they seem to have their heads on straight, except for whatever they were thinking with this trade. (laughs) But like as much as, you know, maybe a 32nd overall first round pick doesn't sound like a big deal. Having the ability to add picks together and possibly move up in next year's draft is mm-hmm. going to be very huge. I think yeah. that there's there's obviously there's a lot of depth in this draft, so getting a lot of picks in the first and second round is huge anyway because there's a lot of really good players in 2023, but there's definitely tiers in this draft that if you can trade just into that tier it makes a big mm. difference, right? So if they can find it, man, if they can get a pick inside that top three with Mitchkov or Bedard, that's a huge deal. Like that's massive, whether it's through their own pick being bad or being able to move up a couple spots that changes the future of the organization in a massive way, more so than yeah. anything that could happen in the 2022 draft. And that's why, I love this, and I, I've been saying as soon as Hughes took over and the rebuild was going to be obvious, 
that every single trade they should be asking for 2023 first round picks. And it's nice to see a general manager for the Montreal Canadiens actually listen to me for once. The last <laughs> time was when I said draft Arturi Lekkonen. <laughs> That's right. I remember. I remember that one. Um, I think. Like so, I was trying to figure out from the Florida Panthers perspective. Now, the trade from the Montreal side is obvious, <laughs> but from the Florida side, you know, it's not even an element to their blue line that they're lacking, right? Because they've got Radko Gudas, who is all the physicality of Ben Chirot, but also a analytics darling, right? And what I was thinking is that I think that it has more to do for the Florida Panthers, I think it has more to do with them denying that to other teams, not wanting Toronto to get Ben Chirot, not wanting Tampa to get Ben Chirot, who will probably, that that will be the route through the, through the playoffs. And so it's not so much about picking up Ben Chirot. It's, it's kind of like, you know what I mean? If 50% of it is, is having shot on your team, the other 50% is having shot, not on another play on, on another team. So that's the only thing that I can think of. The only reason why I can think of, because apparently um, the Florida Panthers just came in with like a bully offer as if Ben Sherratt was like a falling down bungalow in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> offer 50% above asking. Yes. Shut yeah. up and take my money. So, yeah. um, it's, it's an interesting situation. Yeah. And I don't know who it was that asked uh, Sherratt about analytics in his like outgoing press conference. I don't know why you'd even ask him because first of all, <laughs> I don't think it's that important for players to know that much about analytics. It's mm -hmm. like, it's the people above them that can teach them using what they know about their game. It's implementing them. Not like if a player doesn't know their Corsi, I couldn't really give two shits. Like it, it does yeah. not matter and it shouldn't matter to them. That's yeah. not what they should be thinking about when they're out on the ice. But <laughs> for people who are like, oh, well, you know, Sherratt, all the analytics people don't like him. You don't need analytics to <laughs> criticize Ben Sherratt's game. And I don't yeah. want to like crap on him on his way out the door, but just to give context to what the Canadians sold here, he's like in the bottom 10 for all defensemen over the last three years in just straight up goal differential at five on five. Like yeah. they get massively outscored while You're he's on the plus ice. minus. No, not plus minus because plus minus includes empty net and shorthanded situations. I right? see. I see. Or shorthanded goals. So plus minus has a lot more noise in it than just straight up goal difference. And over a right, three gotcha. year sample goal difference actually has something to it, right? No, I just teasing. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But just for everybody else's clarity, not quite plus minus, but yeah. like him and David Savard are both, I believe in the bottom six or seven in the entire league over the last three years. That it's just, it's a bad impact player. And yes, he plays high leverage minutes against high level competition also with very good average teammates. Mm -hmm. It's like, yes, it, it, he plays tough minutes, but how bad would everyone else have to be in those minutes to justify him playing those minutes when he's getting pumped, right? So as much as he's a good room guy and maybe a good leader, this is such a big win for Montreal. It's yeah. hard to even overstate it. I mean, we just saw Rasmus Ristolainen sign five years by $5.1 million. And with players that bring that style, that have that kind of edge to them, and, and that's pretty much all that they bring, they're, I would call them like a nice to have, you know? Like when Montreal got Douglas Murray in, um, I believe they gave up like nothing for him, like a fourth round pick or a fifth round pick. And he Wasn't just it a UFA as, signing? Douglas Murray. I thought that he was at the uh, um, at the trade deadline, but he, if he was a UFA signing, then again, it was it was low. But the point is, is that they sat him, they sat him, they sat him. They brought him in for a Boston game. He played eight minutes, hit everything that moved, and then like that was it. Like and and then think about uh, like a guy like Zach Bogosian as well. As long as you're not paying these guys like the Rasmus Ristolainen contract to the point where you can sit them or have them on your bottom pair or use them to their strengths, and you're not saying, I'm sorry, but we're paying you as a you know, top pairing or, or second pairing defenseman, therefore we have to use you there, then these guys can contribute something to a team. You know, I, I, 
I'm not like all analytics in that sense, but you know, like it's a nice to have if you're building around like Philadelphia giving Ristolainen 5.1 million. Can I say it again? Philadelphia giving Ristolainen 5.1 million. I thought everyone knew he sucked by now, but I guess I was wrong. No, but- they think he's great because he's played the whole season with Travis Sanheim, and apparently. <laughs> they might be looking to trade Travis Sanheim, who's been carrying wrist line the whole time. I will say I disagree about the Douglas Murray thing because he's literally the worst player I've ever watched. <laughs> like, I know he had his time in San Jose yeah. where he was actually really good. But when Montreal yeah. got him, well, that's that easy is really good. <laughs> he was the biggest sink I've ever seen on a team. It is it was unbelievable. Like I remember that series against yeah. Boston. The Canadians yeah. came in, dominated the first two games, threw Douglas Murray yeah. in for no reason, and the Bruins yeah. had something like 80% of the scoring chances in that game. <laughs> and yeah. it just destroyed everything. And they yeah. they lost that game on a Douglas Murray ignoring the puck trying to go for a hit play, I believe in overtime. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to go there with Douglas Murray having a being a nice to have. Maybe at the peak of his career, but uh, not when he was on the yeah. Penguins and not when he was on the Canadians. But the point is that they didn't give him much. No, I mean that right? is that so is they, the point. so. There was yeah. no expectation for it, right? So even if you say, okay, look, Douglas Murray can't play, and you just sit him as your seventh defenseman, then you didn't give up. You didn't give up anything for him, so it doesn't really matter. So you're and saying that where, uh, getting Ben Sherratt and expecting him to be a seventh defenseman for the Florida Panthers for a first round pick and the <laughs> deepest draft we've had in years is a bad choice. I'm saying that it might not be a good one. <laughs> watch, watch. He's going to score the series winning goal for the Panthers in the first round and break their Jesus, like 30 year, almost uh, first round victory. They haven't gone out of the first round since 96 when they went to the cup final on a Cinderella run. Yeah. I find yeah. that wild, but at the same time, it makes sense to a certain extent because they're probably over that time. They've been the poorest franchise in the league. So, yeah, you know, it's not like Toronto where they've had all the money in the world and haven't been able to make it work. Not to give a pot shot at Toronto, but uh, also to give a pot <laughs> shot at Toronto. Um, <laughs> let's get back to the game a little bit. Uh, Cole Caulfield and Nick Suzuki are unbelievably entertaining right now. And I know that this run that they're on isn't going to last forever at this rate that they're scoring at, but every Canadians fan should be watching these games right now. And that is not something that you can say about most teams in the standings (laughs) where they are. Yeah. Cole Caulfield. And since February 1st, um, when, uh, when Martin St. Louis took over has got 4.02 points per 60, which puts him ahead of Matt Zuccarello. This is in all situations. Jordan Cairo, yep. Kevin Fiala, Jesper Bratt, Nathan McKinnon, Krill Kaprasov, Sidney Crosby, Kyle Connor, Jonathan Marcheseau, March, Mark Stone. Well, Mark Stone's been injured actually for a lot of this time, but still that's actually a rate. So it's still even that impressive, but like, I mean, that was a good list, no? <laughs> yep, it was a pretty good list. I mean, just looking yeah. at like a general thing like goals above replacement, at yeah. the time when Ducharme was fired, Cole Caulfield was actually dead last on the Canadians in goals above replacement. Now, he had started to turn the corner, mm-hmm. and part of that goals above replacement calculation is like production, right? Yeah. It, it matters that he wasn't getting yeah. production. Since then... And this is including, this isn't just since then splits. This is including the whole season in what it's been 15 games now or 16 games, 16 games. So 16 games on top of the 30 that he had already played. He's now up to, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eighth in goals above replacement on the team from last. Like, and Suzuki's up from being in and around the middle to first. He actually passed Arturi Lekkanen recently. So just it's do you remember watching the two of them at the beginning of the season when they started on the same line? It looked like they they yeah. couldn't find each other. They had no chemistry whatsoever. Yeah. Now it's like they're the Sedin twins. <laughs> it's um it's really awesome to watch them. And more than anything, like I remember where I was during that Ottawa Senators game 
when the Montreal Canadiens came back from, was it four nothing or something like that to win the game in the third. And it just, it, it stands, it holds some sort of a fringe record of like, you know, the most goals in that time to win a game. Anyways, whatever it was, the point was, I remember where I was and that was leading up to their run to the conference final. That game kind of solidified the team that would, would make that incredible Cinderella run. Yeah. Uh, And there was a sense with that team that anything could happen. And there has not been that sense with the Montreal Canadiens until now, where I'm, I'm watching this game. Even the other night, it, it took me until the third period when they were down like 5-2 or whatever, when I went, okay, maybe they're not going to win it. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, there's just a sense. It was like 4-2 and you're kind of like, maybe. Yeah, they, they don't be unlikely, but maybe they don't give up. You know, they, they push games to overtime. Yeah, they, it's been such a change from an opponent scores one goal. Like they score the first goal a couple <laughs> minutes in. And you're like, oh, this game's over, which yeah. has been the whole season. Right. Yeah, uh, it's 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 nuts. And as much as the Caulfield goal was great, because not only did he create the situation on the power play where he knocked the Dallas Stars uh, player basically off balance so that he lost an edge and then mm-hmm. put the puck up to the point, then found Suzuki and got into the passing lane and did the one-timer goal. We don't talk enough about Caulfield's playmaking ability and the way yeah. that he's been hounding on turnovers. Like, yeah, the Nick Suzuki goal, absolutely yeah. brilliant move by Suzuki to beat Ottinger, who was great tonight, by the way. At, like almost yeah. as good as Allen was, but the Suzuki or the Caulfield play to intercept that puck along the boards when yeah. nine out of 10 players, maybe more would be backing off into the neutral zone. Like, Oh, well they've got a clean zone exit here. They've got too much space. He's there picking that pass off, just sneaking in with his little Hobbit body. And then he makes the pass to find Suzuki who just instinctually knows that Caulfield's going to get that puck and gets into a shooting position. It's crazy how well they've become this simpatico duo after just being lost at the beginning of the year. Like, I, yeah. I can't get over how different it is. Yeah. One does not simply sneak into the boards to pick up a loose puck. <laughs> Unless you're Bilbo Baggins. Or Cole Caulfield. You said Hobbit body, so it just, you know, kind of yes. got the... Got the old wheels turning in the old noggin there. But well, I mean, um, it makes sense that they call him Bilbo Baggins because it's like he's got the friggin' ring and he disappears and then shows up on the board <laughs> and steals the puck. Like his ability to fall, like lose himself in coverage, it just wasn't there yeah. at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And now nobody can track him. I mean, to relate this to another player that's been a little bit interesting on the Montreal Canadiens, like when Lorando Fan first got his chance with this team you could tell that he had nhl hands he had nhl shot and of course he's got nhl size he's a big tough to deal with fella but man just did not think the game on any kind of level backhand passes to nobody you know pinches like there was just nothing <laughs> right but at least mike hoffman puts up the goals right yes, speaking yeah. of a nice to have right as opposed to who you want to build around but that's a different story. But my point is, is that we're seeing Laurent Dauphin all of a sudden start to understand the game better. Now, I don't think that he's necessarily going to become, you know, uh, a, <laughs> necessarily a bottom line center, but we're seeing him understand the game better and we're seeing him not make those stupid mistakes anymore. And that seems to be the same thing with Cole Caulfield. Just a lot of guys are just starting to understand this game so much better and understand what they can do and they're thinking outside the box and they're just you know to your point right think about i think it was in today's press conference brett kulak said something to the extent of um i'm not afraid to make mistakes anymore and i can just you know and you go back to when kulak played with jeff petrie they were statistically by Corsi and expected goals for percentage the best defensive pairing in the nhl and you heard that right in the NHL, right? Now, it, 
say what you want about eye tests and analytics, but then the next year they brought in Sherratt to replace Kulak. And the year after that, they brought it with, uh, with Jeff Petrie. And the year after that, they brought in Edmondson to replace Kulak with Jeff Petrie. Now, Edmondson and Petrie is a pretty decent pair. I'm not necessarily complaining. But my point is that um, all of a sudden, a player with upside like Kulak is being rewarded for that upside and not punished for the mistakes. Yep. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. And that difference is going to filter down to every kid that makes the team as well. Like, I want to see after the deadline, when some players are moved out, I want to see what Jesse Yalonen looks like under Marty St. Louis. I want to see a few different players from Laval just to just to see. I am kind of sad that Paling is out indefinitely because it seemed like he was really starting to take a step and he was getting a lot of minutes. You know, obviously, I don't think he'd get first pair or first uh, first line power play minutes now that Dvorak is back and he's going to fit better in that spot. Another guy who had a great night tonight after being out for so long. It's yeah, this is the thing that I keep on harping on about what this team could be in the building blocks that are already in place. It makes no sense that they're competitive right now. Like it, yeah. it, it makes no sense. And they're not just winning games. Like the coyotes have been laced lately where they're shooting like 40% at even strength. <laughs> like yeah. they're actually outplaying teams for the most part. And even when they're not, they find ways to get back in it. They have like these short bursts where they're just unbeatable. The fact that they've mm-hmm. been doing it with one, you know, top six, tops nine center, you know, Suzuki's been the only guy almost mm-hmm. the entire time under St. Louis. Jake Evans, yeah. I love him, but he's a fourth line center. He's a very good fourth line center. Laurent Dauphin, yeah. again, if he makes the NHL, he's a fourth line center. I think he's more of a 13th forward. Rem Pitlick, yeah, he's le- I like guy. him, but Rem Pitlick is a winger more than a center to me. Yeah. So the fact that they've been competitive at all with one guy who's part of that core down the middle is it's just nuts. And now that Dvorak's Mm -hmm. back, I'm interested to see how good this team can be down the stretch. And I know people want to maintain as high of a pick as they can get, but I think the value you're going to see in the young players and the confidence level in St. Louis and each other is actually worth more than the difference between like first and fourth. And they're not going to go too far above like, yeah. I don't think they can even catch like the fifth best team in the league, no matter how well they play down the stretch. So there's not really much risk there. Uh, Corey Schooneman also, or Schooneman, I should say, scored his first NHL goal tonight, which is awesome because he's a guy who has been just extremely solid, found money yeah. for this organization. Nobody really expected him to be much heading into this season. He played great with Laval, and every time he's got a chance in Montreal, he's just quiet, efficient makes the right decision all the time. He's kind of the opposite of Romanov, right? (laughs) He's just always makes the right decision, but isn't flashy. And so I, I really like the guy. I think he's got some NHL level potential. How high in the lineup? Not sure. Might just be a third pairing guy, but decent. I think he's found money. I think that like, it's just like that joke that I made with Montebo, like, dare I make it again with you, which is like, you know, you just got to say the same thing with a more positive spin to it. This guy could be a third pairing guy. Oh, no, it is a positive spin. Yeah, because this is what like, we've been paying for depth on the Montreal Canadiens. We've been paying for depth. And that's like a huge problem. Successful teams are not paying $3 million to a fourth line guy. Successful teams are not paying two and a half to $3 million for third pairing defensemen. If you can get somebody and, you know, going back to Brett Kulak, if you can get somebody like Brett Kulak, who was got for nothing, Renette Valiev and some other fella, you know, if you can get a guy like that for virtually nothing and pay them 1.8 million, I think, which is what Kulak's making and have them, be an excellent third pairing guy. That's what you need. Good teams are not paying Joel Armia's $3.4 million. It's just not, it's just not what they're doing. So to your point, you know, Jake Allen's now making a reasonable contract. So maybe, maybe you move on from Samuel Montembeau, but getting these guys and, and giving them, you know, an honest chance to compete in the NHL and deciding whether we can 
like these players aren't expecting a lot. Like, I don't want to sound like mean, but like Rem Pitlick is not expecting an, an eight by eight. You know what I mean? On his next contract. So like found money is just the perfect word, the perfect phrase for it, because that's exactly what we need. We need to identify that depth and we clearly have aspects of the top end of the talent spectrum and hopefully through the draft there's more obviously rumors that Montreal is going to be going hard in free agency so maybe there's a little bit more to that but yeah I'll take it every day of the week yeah it's found gold right it's just you this is a weird thing about this situation with the Montreal Canadiens and I keep on talking about it because it's just fascinating to me (laughs) the Canadians are one of the worst teams in the league overall although not lately and they're not winning every game. They're winning enough. Like they're winning half their games under St. Louis. Yeah. This is the happiest fan base in the league. Like <laughs> easily the happiest in Canada. Maybe Calgary is as happy because they're yeah. a legitimate Stanley cup contender and they're adding and yeah. they're making good moves. And they like Daryl Sutter is just a, a phenomenal coach. Like they've got so much going for them. Jacob Markstrom is pushing Mika Kiprasov's records. Fantastic there. And they have Tyler Foley. Who wouldn't be happy? But the Montreal Canadiens have seen an absolute roller coaster of a last year, right? Stanley Cup final miracle run, terrible draft. And then everybody who is holding them back gets booted and they have actual hope. And you go through a half terrible, half season of terrible, and you get this. But let's. Shift gears to the officiating because we've got a lot of people talking about it <laughs> in the stream chat. We have to mention it. Like I said off the top of the show, it hasn't been the best month for NHL officials. <laughs> and I, I alluded to Gord Miller had a thread on Twitter yesterday talking about how officials have been held back this year because there have been some major injuries that have forced officials to be overworked, both uh, referees and linesmen. There have been big retirements. There have been, you know, lack of young officials coming up because, you know, people just don't want to do it because it's a hard job. (laughs) Yeah. But that accepted. Friggin' terrible job. (laughs) Like, it's just, (laughs) it's really embarrassing how bad it is. And it's hard to watch. And the NHL needs to find some solutions. Yeah. Missed call the cross check in front of the net on, I believe, Dauphin in the third period, and then yeah. calling Armia for goaltender interference when the goalie has the puck behind the net. Like goalie interference is for in the crease. You're actually allowed to play on the goaltender behind the net. If you're going to call yeah. it, call it tripping, right? Because yeah, it was a slew like foot. Knees, right? Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't call that foot. a slew foot because a slew foot includes like a motion backwards from the shoulder, right? That's just a battle okay. where yeah. knees got knocked. I, I think yeah. to me that's incidental contact, but if you want to call it fine, if that's the standard, but the goal in overtime, Jake Allen's <laughs> pissed. Now oh, yeah. I, I turned the TV off right away and started setting up for the stream. So I didn't see that it was actually reviewed until I saw it on Twitter, but uh, it sure looked like very clear interference from Tyler Sagan. And yeah, I think Jake Allen has every right to be mad. My it, my thing is, though, if you're a Canadians fan, this is a great year for all of the calls to go against you. Yeah. A great year for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree. Like, that's, that's, it, it's almost like more satisfying to lose that way. And then it's like you get to tank, but still in the back of your head, be like, we were the better team. We should have won, even though uh, statistically the Montreal Canadians had, you know, uh, 43% of the expected goals for percentage. Am I getting that? Yeah, right? they, they weren't the better team tonight. Yeah, they I, I think the there team. was a, there was a period but, of time where they were the better team. Uh, like, yeah, Dallas was much better in the first period, but I thought Dallas actually had nothing going in the second period until they missed the call on Lekkanen and then gave the call to Dallas on a pretty chintzy play that gave them the power play goal. And then they just really ramped it up at the end of the period. So, you know, something that I you can influence the game. Yeah, something that I love about the Bell Center, and and you hear it to a lesser extent in other uh, arenas, but the cheers after the the fans see a call, followed by the immediate boos. Yep. I don't think that you hear that in other arenas quite as pronounced. Yeah, ooh, you know, in the game. But I I think, like, 
One of the funniest things that I remember reading is a tweet. I think it was Ken Campbell tweeted it and said, if Gary Bettman is saying that our officials are that our officials are the best in the world in any sport, then it stands to reason that they're being told to call the game this way. Yes. Which and means that there is a systemic issue. Yeah. And it's not. And I think that like the average fan, like, you know, I know that last in the playoffs, Montreal fans were showing every time that that there was a whiffed call from a Leaf player cross-checking a Hab. And I'm like, come on, guys. Like, you've got a team with Edmondson, Sherratt, and 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 Weber. Like, Yeah, you know <laughs> they're cross-checking more than the Leafs. Yeah. It just is true. There's going to be missed calls. And I think that for the most part, fans can live with those missed calls. It's the calls where it's actually reviewed and actually seen. And actually, those are the calls that are hard to live with. So going to the goaltender interference uh, call that Alan was pissed about, there was a an intention for a stick lift. Now, I actually don't know what the rules are around a stick lift. I do know that you're not allowed to initiate contact with a goalie outside of the crease. And the inside the crease, even if the goalie initiates contact, it's still interference. interference. Yeah. So let's say that a stick lift is a gray zone. The fact is that that stick didn't just lift. It hit his blocker. Yes. And any time that the stick goes into the hands, even a little bit, these days that gets called. This isn't this isn't our good old days, Andrew, right? This isn't the, you know, the the Chelios days, right? Where you could just it's just open season on slashing and hooking guys' hands. Anything in the hands gets called these days. And so maybe he could have gone for the poke check, maybe he couldn't have, but at the end of the day, the stick was in the hands. That seems like just an obvious call regardless of whether he was in the crease outside of the crease any other circumstance it's just a stick in the hands it's just it's just obvious yeah and it's it's weird to let that go considering the other calls that they made in the game right and i mean we could say that about literally every game and every team can say it because it's so inconsistent but that's kind of the issue right if everybody Mm -hmm. feels like their team is getting screwed yeah clearly you're missing enough that there's reason to believe that. And I think this is one of the things where like, I'm not a better per se, but the whole betting moving into hockey right now, I think is going to push the league to start to call the rule book a little bit more correctly or establish some more black and white situations because everything that the NHL does is they want to build in as much gray zone as they possibly can so that they never have to take accountability for anything. And I just don't think that's going to fly once there's a lot of money on the line every single night. And that starts to be from like powerful people who can push back. Hopefully that's one of the weird positives that we get out of this whole situation, but it, it just needs to change. And the thing that I posted when like Gord Miller posted how tough the referees are, are having it right now. And I have all the sympathy in the world for them. To me, it's not the referees that are at fault. It's the league's directives and the lack of support for referees. I think there needs to be at the very least one off ice official for every single game, whether it's retired officials or people trained for that specific position. The referees can have buds in their ears where they can speak to them. It's yeah. not like it's the 1960s. We have the technology to do we can a freaking earpiece. You know, it's not that hard. So yeah. I, I don't understand why we don't go there outside of the NHL, not doing anything progressive ever without having their hands forced. It has to happen. The game is too fast. Mm-hmm. And if it's the officials egos holding that back, that's a problem too. But I don't think it is. I think most I officials think either. I think most officials want to get the calls right and they don't want to be seen made a fool of because they missed a call. Like the whole Chris Weidman thing in Philadelphia where they called a 5 minute major in order to view the replay because you can only view the replay if you're calling a 5 minute major, but then they called it a 2 minute minor because it wasn't a major, which is like the whole reason why it has to be a five minute major is so that refs don't do that. So you have refs mm-hmm. manipulating the rule book in order to get the right call because it was such an egregious miss that they couldn't yeah. let it go. If we're twisting things that much just to get the right call, just give them some support. The NHL, I, I completely agree with you. And and in a broad stroke setting, 
like I think that officials would support an off ice official. I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't because it creates jobs in their industry. And that's ultimately just better for the industry. Like, like, would you be mad? You know, you write for the Gazette, you, you host for the SDPN, right? You know, um, would you be mad if the Gazette turned around and said, you know what, we're going to hire more writers. Like you wouldn't be mad because it's an industry that needs more jobs. It doesn't necessarily take away from you. Exactly. I almost look at the NHL as like a 2010 iPhone user. <laughs> they just, they just have their own little world. Yes. I love how you got that immediately. I didn't even have to explain <laughs> for those that don't like the nerd jokes. It's like, they just have their own little world and they don't understand that there are things that are as good, sometimes better, sometimes worse out there. They're like, iPhone has the best camera. And it's like, well, hold on a second. It did have the best camera, but we're not comparing it to Blackberry anymore. Right. It's, yeah. it's, we've now got the whatever the the nexus right it's out so when the i think that your point about gambling is is well made because sooner or later somebody who's big and gambling on football and big and gambling on basketball is going to walk in and say nope you i know you guys have done it the same way the nhl's had the same president since the 90s like, yeah that's practically it's too my long. whole life right somebody's going to walk in and say i don't care how you've been doing it this whole time you want me to put hundreds of thousands of dollars on your games at uh, every night there's no way that i'm leaving it up to this and that's that's my point as well which is that i think that people okay a tripping is going to get missed that's the hey boo kind of thing right but when you actually send it to toronto to review the goaltender interference call and you watch a guy standing in the crease hook the goalie's hand and you go Yep, this is fine. And send it back. Like you did all of this work to make sure you got the right call. And like, I, I don't think that there's a, a Dallas fan alive that would agree with that call. I really don't. Because it's, it's, it's crazy. So those are the calls that bother me. And those are the ones that need to get cleaned up. Hockey's a fast game. And frankly, I don't want the rule book called. Because I like when, you know, when a little bit of garbage happens in the game, I like a little bit of grit. That's what I love about hockey. And I, I'm, I'm increasingly in the minority here, but wouldn't bother me if the rule book was called. But like, my point is, is that it's those calls that really ruin the game. You're in overtime. You called a different city. It's not long distance anymore, but you called a different city where they've got a team of experts. And the best they could come up with was, yep, and then you got to think that that ref's got to go out there knowing that it's the wrong call. He's got to go out on the ice knowing it's the wrong call. I'm convinced he didn't turn his microphone on on purpose because he did not want to be heard even saying those words. That's like when the press secretary went out after the Trump inauguration and said, this is the biggest gathering of people in all time ever. You know you're wrong. You know you're wrong and you had to say it anyways. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, they... They've just, they've got to change things up. And I always harp on it that we're in the last six years, we've had yeah. the sixth lowest number of penalty call seasons ever in the history of the game since it's been tracked yeah. since the sixties, <laughs> a few more power plays isn't going to hurt. We want scoring to go up a few more power plays isn't going to hurt. And those Bingo. power plays will go down once players get used to what they can't do anymore. And then yeah. even strength will be opened up again, just like in 2005. The people who are like uh, complaining, like, oh, we don't want too many calls. Always make me wonder, like, what are you watching? Because right now there's fewer penalties in the clutch and grab era in terms yeah. of what's called. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we, we can do better than this. All right. Uh, yeah. One last thing that I wanted to talk about. We'll try to go through it quickly is uh, Claude Giroux played his thousandth game for the Philadelphia Flyers, which is, you know, great and sad because he's definitely going to be traded. They're making a big deal out of it. Uh, Giroux after the game said that it was great and also terrible. Uh, that's not the exact quote, but basically what he said, it <laughs> like didn't feel great. Also was fun, but I look at Claude Giroux and I've been stuck on this for the last couple of weeks. I look at his career in Philly and I look at how he plays, his size, his impact on the organization. 
And I'm a little bit jealous, even though everyone in Philly is sad right now, that he's getting this farewell tour because he reminds me so much of Saku Koivu. He is that mm. same level of carrying them through a time that should have been more successful if they had supported yeah. him properly. You know, Sean Couturier is his Placanich. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's their parallels are incredible when you actually break it down. Couture or not, sorry, Couture. Uh, Giroux has a higher level of point production, but his teams were also significantly better. Fewer injuries, that too, but Koivu and Giroux are actually like really good comparables for each other. Uh, you know, underrated defensively, really dynamic on the power play. It's weird because I, I keep on watching this stuff with Giroux, and all I can think of is Canadians fans deserve that, with Koivu, like to say the long goodbye instead of yeah. the, you know, shuffling him off to in free agency after one of the worst playoff series in the organization's history, where yeah. he was by by the way, I believe their best player in that series. Yeah, I mean, even the level that they are within the NHL, where Claude Giroux is that just that little step below um, the elite players player. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I, I've. I think that that whole time, that early to mid 2000s time was a weird one as a hockey fan because like narratives took hold in a very powerful way back then. And this narrative that Koivu was no good took hold in a very powerful way. It even took hold that that Sundin was no good in Toronto. And I remember yes, a friend. I remember that. I remember a friend telling me years later, he said, I remember he said to me that he remembers saying that Sundin wasn't a true number one center. He wasn't a he wasn't a real number one center. And then after Sundin and Toronto parted ways, he goes, it didn't even occur to me that your team could just not have a number one center. And it's the exact same thing with Saku Koivu, which is that like the same narrative, oh, he's not a true number one, oh, he's not an elite talent, he's not this, he's not that. And then once we once once we split up with Saku Koivu, it's like, oh, but like you can just then not have any number one center. You can or you could just pay Scott Gomez twice the salary to do less <laughs> and lose yeah. Ryan McDonough. Right, exactly. And and so I think that the hindsight has left a lot of, uh, has created a lot of redemption. And I just think that it's an unfortunate fact of the times when you look at like, um, I want to say it was, Kobe Bryant kind of had a, a farewell season in yes. the NBA. And like, the, like that's where it goes to the extreme where the whole season was taken over by the Kobe Bryant farewell tour, but it's just a different time now. And, and, and we, there's a lot more of like, first of all, we can see every game. We can watch every game. Whereas back then you couldn't watch every game on TV, right? In the early 2000s, you couldn't watch it. Dark days indeed. We had the bunny years, right? We were yep. lucky if we got Habs games on uh, on the bunny years. So it's just a different time. And because you can watch every game, because of Twitter, I, I begrudge to admit a good thing that Twitter's done. Because of natural stat trick and evolving wild, because of all this stuff, we have so much more information as fans. And I feel like those narratives don't take hold the same way in a fan base to simply say this guy's a bum. And if you want the modern example, it's Jonathan Drouin, right? Because there is sort of a, a narrative amongst, you know, certain a certain demographic of fans that say he's a bum, but there's a heavy pushback on that narrative as well that says, well, okay, he's not what we wanted him to be, but he's also not bad. Right. We can see the numbers. We can, we're watching every game. There's, there's, there's now a discussion as opposed to simply just a, we opened up the newspaper that morning and said, Oh, oh okay. So I guess he does suck. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I feel like Druin's biggest issue is that the organization sold him as the superstar center that they were looking for. Yeah. Right. And he was never going to be that. And I think anybody who'd yeah. watched him in the NHL before that knew that. And, you know, I, I think people who didn't challenge that in media when Mark Bergevin started pushing that narrative should be a little bit ashamed because from the out, they, it should never have been allowed to set that mm. standard at the beginning. Yeah. It was dooming Jonathan Drouin and Again, another player that I would like to see under St. Louis and see what he can do. As yeah. for Matt Sundin, I want to circle back on that slightly because <laughs> the idea that he's not a number one center, 
he was with the Maple Leafs from 94, 95 to 2007, 2008. Over that time, where do you think he was <laughs> in points league wide? Top five. Third. 987 in 981 games. The only guys ahead of him, Joe Sackick and Yarmir Yager. In goals, <laughs> in goals, he had 420, which was fifth behind Yager, Solani, Keith Kachuk, and Brendan Shanahan, current yeah. president of the Maple Leafs. So Matt yeah. Sundin was definitely a number one Is center. That good? It's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. Man, he is, you know, Matthews will be, but Matt Sundin is the best player in Maple Leafs history. Not that it's a high bar because they haven't exactly had very many stars. <laughs> they don't I mean, do the stars in Toronto. They really no, don't. they don't. They're the lunch yeah. pail team. That's why, like, I've been pushing back on, like, the whole identity of this is a tangent that I shouldn't even be going into. We've gone long enough. But the, Mark, Mark Bergevin's whole philosophy of building a team in Montreal, the, like, lunch pail, hardworking, gritty team. That's not the Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. It's not the goddamn Montreal Canadiens. Yeah. That's the Toronto Maple Leafs. Does that describe Guy Lafleur to you? No. <laughs> it doesn't even, it doesn't even describe Lemaire. You know, yeah. like Lemaire had flair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I just, even Bob Ganey, I guess. But, like, Bob Ganey could score. I've got a long brown leather duster jacket. Because I saw Serge Savard, a picture of Serge Savard wearing one. And so I was like, that's a great jacket. And I got to get it. But it's a fancy kind of like when I wear it, you know, I kind of get a little um, made fun of <laughs> by by the hockey fans here in Toronto. But um, but that's the point is that even going back then, they they had flair. They had style. Right. You look at any Google search, the big three image search, and you'll find them wearing out their clothes. I mean, God just look Subban at do it. Just look at Robinson Savard or Robinson. Sorry, yeah. Robinson's fro. You know, that was yeah. uh, legendary and the mustache. You're, yeah. never, you're not going to fail to recognize that. But uh, before we go too far into Canadians history, uh, let's <laughs> let's wrap it up here, because I think we've gone long enough. I've taken enough of your time. We've both got uh, young children to tend to in the morning. So uh, yep. before we close it out here, Dylan, uh, tell everybody where to find your work. Well, it's never work when it's as fun as this, Andrew. True. But you can find uh, my Habs podcast is the Habs Statistician podcast, um, H-A-B-S-Statistician. You can find I do a more general NHL show with, uh, with Ken Campbell called Hockey Unfiltered. There might be some big news dropping on that show soon. Ooh. Uh, and, of course, you can follow my writing at HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. This is, uh, you know... If you're following Andrew, you probably know HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. And uh, follow me on Twitter. I say a lot of stuff sarcastically that I expect people to take as jokes that they don't necessarily realize that I just am sarcastic. I'm a millennial. I'm sorry. Okay? And <laughs> that's uh, underscore Dylan Waugh. Dylan spelt like Bob and Waugh is spelt like Evelyn. And uh, yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on this show tonight. It's been a hell of a season. We've got 21 games left. At this rate, can Cole Caulfield pass Michael Bunting in goals and destroy any semblance of stupid Leafs fans pretending he's the Calder Trophy winner when Maurice Sider and Lucas Raymond exist and aren't 74 years old? Yes, yes, he can. And he's going to do it in the next couple of weeks. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you on Saturday. I've got uh, another good show lined up for you. The Canadians are taking on the Senators for the first time this season. That's wow, weird. But it's <laughs> taken this long after playing them, I think, like 10 times last year. So it'll be a fun one. Two bad teams. Again, this has been a weird part of the schedule. Everyone's non-playoff teams. But uh, I guess Dallas is in it now. But uh, anyway, 